developing a business plan. Sounds fairly straightforward, right? You're forming a medical practice or a dialysis joint venture or an access center, or maybe you're thinking about merging your practice with the former competitors from across town. What's my plan, you ask? We're going to build a great practice that provides great care to the kidney patients in our community. Okay, that's a start. What will this practice look like? Well, you say, we'll open two offices and round at five nearby dialysis facilities and get on staff at the two major hospitals plus the two community hospitals in the nearby suburbs. Good, but we'll need more details and we'll want to know your strategy for success. You might say, we'll be desirable and successfully compete with the established practice in town because we're smart, we're young and energetic, and we care more about patients than they do. Well, that's an aspiration, a dream, not really a business plan. Don't get me wrong, it's a good start, something that can be used to create mission and vision statements, but it's missing important details. Those details include things like a market analysis, the population of people who might avail themselves of your services, which insurers are the ones that most of those people have contracts with, location, how your company will be organized and managed, the strategy you will employ for competitive differential advantage, licensing and credentialing, and financial projections, including borrowing needs. Even if you don't think you'll require outside funding to get up and running, that's an unlikely scenario given the significant upfront costs incurred prior to receiving enough revenue to cover your costs and also pay yourself a salary or distribute profit. A well-written and detailed business plan is an organizational must that clarifies your goals and the actions to be taken to get there. Writing it down in detail without skipping steps forces each relevant question to be answered. If you do expect to apply to a lender for cash, a well-articulated business plan will be required. I've written several business plans over the course of my career as a practicing nephrologist and as president and CEO of a successful practice. I used commercially available software for a template that I would have to carefully follow for each prescribed step. It was a tedious process, and because of the need to articulate clearly and research demographics and know my financials, from the cost of employee wages and benefits and the number and types of such employees projected to be needed, to the cost of centrifuge tubes and urine dipsticks, it took many hours to complete. I typically spent a couple of hours each day for a few weeks doing the required research, creating spreadsheets, projecting financial statements, you know, the balance sheet, and the profit loss or income statement, and fine-tuning the narratives about who we were and who and where we wanted to be in one, five, and ten-plus years, and importantly, how we intended to get there. The beauty of a well-constructed business plan is that it requires a lot of thought about the business, the market, the community, the nuts and bolts of running an organization, and the expected and required inflows and outflows of cash to make it happen. And that requires a lot of thought about potential trade-offs that the strategic plan will demand. That's about avoiding trying to be all things to all customers all the time. More on that later. Our organization worked with the same banking institution for all of the 30 years I was in the practice. We developed a trusted relationship with one another. They came to expect a financial success from us that was good for their business and made us a low-risk client. And we came to rely on them for competitively priced loans to expand our business from time to time. But they always wanted to see the pro forma projections, the reasons behind the need that we were telling them about, the growth potential, etc., i.e., they wanted to see a business plan. 
So in speaking of a business plan, are there any financing pitfalls? A few things to consider are four different things. One, interest rate. Two, the term of the loan repayment. Three, collateral. For example, your accounts receivable or other assets. And four, the presence or not of personal guarantees. And the question I would have for you is, could you negotiate potentially a non-recourse loan that doesn't require personal guarantees? Well, let's take a look at these one at a time. Interest rate. Banks often tie interest rates on their business loans to prime rate or LIBOR. Prime plus one is an example. Just as with savings rates, however, there is significant variability among lenders. So it's important to shop around. Note that the rate offered will typically also vary with the length of the term of the loan, the collateral, and whether or not personal guarantees are required. For example, uh, you may be familiar with a mortgage, uh, a 15-year or a 30-year mortgage, where the rates are a little bit different, depending upon the length of the term of the repayment period. The second item is term. Business loans tend to be short-term compared to what we're used to seeing with home mortgages. Also, unlike mortgages, additional fees, those closing costs, are minimal, if any, and a 5- to 10-year term is fairly typical. The next is collateral. If the loan is for a joint venture dialysis facility, it's not likely that the position investor will be able to use the dialysis company partner as the source of collateral or any sort of guarantee, which could potentially trigger the anti-kickback statute. Regardless of the purpose of the loan, a new practice is at a disadvantage because it's new. No accounts receivable, few if any other assets, so collateral may be your personal assets, which brings us to the loan guarantees. To whom does the lender go to in the case of default? If the practice is already an established going concern with a proven track record of financial success, it may be possible to obtain a non-recourse loan without personal guarantees. That is, if the borrower defaults, the lender can seize the collateral but cannot seek out the borrower for any further compensation, even if the collateral does not cover the full value of the defaulted amount. The company would be the source of the collateral and guarantee. This is preferable, although not always possible, so as not to put at risk one's personal assets, such as their home. Keep in mind that many lenders may require personal guarantees even if there are sufficient assets within the practice that would otherwise provide collateral in an amount sufficient to cover a loan default. Again, shop around to learn the available options. Now, while it may not require hiring an attorney to review the loan, lease, and other agreements that pretty much appear straightforward, and or an accountant or business expert with an MBA to review the financial plan, it's a good idea. There's too much at risk to not have talented people on your team with a comparable degree of know-how about these things as the physician does about treating patients. Navigating Stark and the anti-kickback statute as examples are reasons enough to get a lawyer's expertise to avoid fair market value and self-referral compliance issues. I won't go into the details of those laws, rules, and regulations here, as those items are covered elsewhere in this series. Let's instead return to strategy and the trade-offs I mentioned earlier and see how these relate to and inform the business plan. Well, what do trade-offs mean? Forgoing one thing to do another. Regarding business strategy, we use this term to describe choices we make about how we want to do business to successfully compete in our market that more or less preclude doing business another way, a large part of the emphasis of our business planning, meaning that 
While not necessarily being completely mutually exclusive, divergent but coexisting business strategies can cause confusion, inconsistency, and require excessive resources that could result in a negative impact on the organization's operational and financial bottom lines. If, as Harvard Business School's Michael Porter says, the purpose of strategy is alignment within the organization, a business might find itself working across purposes if it tries to adhere to competing strategies. Having said that, there are circumstances where, due to lagging growth, a company finds it needs to add something new to attempt to reinvigorate itself, maybe by tapping into or creating a new market for a related product or service. Here's an example. It's a historically successful company, uh, and it's Starbucks. They recently announced the decision to try to bolster their sales with the addition of a new strategy. Upscale coffee products and experience called Starbucks Reserve. Now, they're not abandoning their existing strategy to sell coffee to the masses. Rather, they are looking to add to their business success with an additional differentiator. They will continue to forego competing with the lower price market with the likes of Dunkin' Donuts and McDonald's. They don't do that now. Their existing stores fall more or less into the mid-range of coffee pricing for the product and experience, although 25 years ago when they first went public, spending over a dollar for a cup of coffee was a risky proposition. Will this new idea be successful? That is, will $10 plus cups of rare exotic coffee in a more sophisticated environment branded differently and meant to appeal to a different demographic work? And will they be able to maintain alignment across the entire organization? This illustrates the concept of strategy quite well. Starbucks sees itself as being in the coffee drinking business and sees its expanded strategy as consistent with that awareness. One might argue that such a large publicly traded organization has to continue to grow in part by increasing same-store sales, in part by increasing the number of its stores, and in part by finding new products to either invigorate those sales or maybe even tap into what they see as an important new trend in coffee drinking, one they want to be part of, but not at the expense of their core business. Could a medical practice do this? Would the medical equivalent of this be, for example, adding a concierge practice to tap into that profitable trend while maintaining the usual insurance-based system in which we're currently engaged, one based so deeply in government insurance, Medicare and Medicaid, like kidney care? From an organizational perspective, we can see these as two discrete businesses, not two segments of the same business. So that's an important distinction because the required operational infrastructures are considerably unique, meaning also that the human resources are different, as might also be the physical offices, their locations and their improvements or amenities. However, perhaps a counter-argument to that would be that CKD care, while on a continuum with ESRD care, is distinct from ESRD services in multiple ways. One tends to be dominated primarily by commercial insurance coverage, while the other is primarily government insurance coverage. One is provided in the office setting, the other primarily in the dialysis facility. The two are distinguished by how and where they are delivered, as well as by who pays for them. Although they are both about caring for patients with kidney function impairment, as you're in the business of caring for people with kidney ailments, maybe they already are two different businesses. So what does that mean for a nephrology practice's competitive differentiation strategy? I'd love to hear your thoughts. But keep in mind that the way businesses tend to differentiate themselves is based upon quality and or service, 
and or price. Those are the strategy differentiators. And in today's medical practice, regardless of the business segment, dialysis facility, access center, nephrology office, etc., each of these three factors has a role to play. Recall that not so long ago, it was clear that superior quality was difficult to prove, yet almost always invoked. Most of us said then and would say now that we deliver superior quality of care. But the way to show that is with results, which were previously mainly based upon anecdotal case stories and impressions of one's colleagues. Quality is now more measurable than ever because it can be imputed more readily from a practice's outcomes data. It's no longer just about where you or your competitor train, for example, but how effectively your practice creates value. Now, by value, we mean outcomes as a function of the amount spent to achieve those outcomes. What percentage of your incident ESRD patients start in-center hemodialysis with a functioning AV fistula? What percentage start on peritoneal dialysis? How many receive preemptive renal transplants? How often are the patients hospitalized? Etc. Price used to be fixed based upon the Medicare fee schedule in a pure fee-for-service world, adjusted to some degree in commercial insurance contracts, but now there are emerging payment models that insurers may have interest in that incentivize value creation. Cost control through better outcomes, such as the ones listed above, may be resulting in bonus or capitation arrangements that are not strictly a fee per each encounter. Additionally, Service excellence is more and more being defined by patient experience, including through CAPS surveys, not just by referring physicians. Think about all this as you consider the financial aspects of your practice and how your strategy will define it and your business plan. Thank you for listening to the RPA podcast. This is only one of the topics addressed in greater detail in RPA's Renal Physician's Guide to Nephrology Practice. For more information on this and other topics that will help you with efficiently managing your nephrology practice, download a copy of the RPA Guide from the RPA Store at www.renalmd.org. Contact the RPA office at 301-468-3515 with any questions.